You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We're skipping a generation. We've been talking about Abraham the last two weeks. We're skipping to his grandson, But as is my honor, I get to invite our speaker up today. Uh, Many of you know this person. His name is Kurt Libby, uh, incredibly gifted author, uh, preacher, uh, speaker, but also uh, he makes amazing apps. Like just all around, a lot of skills and abilities. On a personal level, a, a good friend of mine, I tell the story every time, but we for many years met in a band meeting where we just confessed sin to one another as a couple of group of pastors. Our, our question for each other each week was, what was your greatest sin this week? And, and I, was, I always say it was the meeting I least wanted to go to and the one I was most glad I went to. And so we have that connection of just really being accountability partners with one another. And the thing I appreciate about, about him most, besides being incredibly gifted at a lot of different things, is his genuine love of Jesus. And so that's my prayer for you today as you hear him, that that would speak through to you all. But would you uh, give a round of applause for Kurt? Thank you, Pastor James. I never get to call you that. Uh, It's good to be back in Orville. And uh, thank you, Matt and the team. That was great for leading us in worship. And I do, it feels like, God's doing something in this place today, so I'm glad that, to be here with you, and if you're online, then uh, you get half credit, but at least you get half, so there <laughs> um, If you have a Bible or a Bible app, or you can turn to Genesis 32, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, as my kids say, you can search it up in the Bible app, search up Genesis 32. Um, and a little bit about me, so in case we haven't met, I'm an ordained Nazarene pastor, and I and in this tent-making season um, where uh, if you don't know a lot about Scripture, that might be confusing. I don't actually make any tents. I just, uh, uh, there's this season that Paul goes through where he makes tents and he devotes himself to preaching. And that's what I'm doing right now is I've got this job where I work on iOS apps and then I, I get to preach. And uh, I didn't get to for like 18 months. Well, that's not true. I did once to an empty room with a camera, and I was like, I'm just going to take a break till this is over because <laughs> this is very weird. Uh, my family and I relocated to Bentonville, Arkansas in 2019. We've really enjoyed our learning our way around the area. If anybody wants to come and visit, we got a guest room, so please come, and uh, it's super fun. It's a great place to raise a family. And as you get to know a new area, you at first it's not obvious because there's just a lot of non-obvious ways that the world is different in different places. And so um, you start to ask questions like, why are the streets laid out like this? Why are they named like this? Where are the good taco trucks? Like, these are the questions that you get. Uh, By the way, they're not in Arkansas. So, um, (laughs) uh, and when you move somewhere completely new, you start to see all these new ways of life, and it makes you realize how much you think is normal isn't normal. It's just normal for you and the people around you. And you're actually really, really weird. Just everybody else around you is weird in the same way. And so it was normal and it worked. But uh, then you go somewhere else and you realize that it's different. And we all grow up somewhere. You, all, we, we, you, you grow up, you grow up somewhere physically, but also in this family system. And, and those family systems are great in some ways and they are completely dysfunctional in other ways. Like, and if you don't know that they're dysfunctional, just 
give it a minute and you'll figure it out. And as we grow up, we, we, we experience pretty quickly, you, you start to see other cultures. And that's really quick. Like even like the way your friend's family does something, you just start to realize like stuff isn't, why is this thing the way that it is? And, and it's um, uh, the different locations, different ways of life, different uh, weather systems, different economies. There's all these different things that come at you and you start to realize like, well, maybe everything that I've learned is just because of where I was and who I was with, and, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's normal or right, and it also becomes clear that everything is a product of what came before it. And I think that for the most part, life is like a lot of people that are doing the best with what they've been given to make a family, raise their kids, raise other people's kids, maybe make the world hopefully a little bit better when they're done with it. Like that's, that's everybody forever, it just keeps happening. Like. Um, and sometimes what was passed down in that process was helpful, but sometimes it is not helpful. And, uh, and so, uh, the, the, but what's, what's important to see and I think helpful to see is that it's not just your family that is just messed up and dysfunctional in a super weird way, uh, and, uh, or, or uh, your community or your uh, church family or your workplace. It's like, no, this has just been forever, and we're always experiencing the ways that things get broken, and then we try to be a part of helping fix that stuff. And this is literally thousands of years, if you just look at history. And, um, and this is important because we're going to look at the story of Jacob, we need to understand that he grew up in a different time, and they were doing the best with what they had to do, and they, they were trying to figure it out. And, um, and so I want to read through the story. We'll go back and kind of dissect it, but um, let's see if this works. I'm going to, oh, I'm a pro. All right. So this is really small, but it's okay because you have a Bible that you brought with you, and if not, <laughs> you can make it up next week. So, um, so uh, Genesis 32, starting in verse 22, says, that night... Jacob got up and took his two wives. Okay, so this is a little bit different. We don't get very far. Uh, I don't know how many of you in this room have two wives. I don't. Uh, but he was in a different culture at a different time, and we'll get into this whole history. But just have some grace and be like, that's weird, but we'll come back to that, all right? Uh, his two female servants and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After... <laughs> After he had sent them across the stream, he then sent over all his possessions, which I think is super weird because you just sent over all your people and they probably could have carried that stuff with them. It seems to me like sort of like a weird Beauty and the Beast situation where everything just, those possessions just come to life and go across. I don't really understand it. It's in the Bible. All right. So verse 24 says, Jacob was left alone. Everybody say alone. And then a man wrestled with him. That's weird. He's by himself. He's completely alone, and a man wrestles with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched, and as he wrestled, or as he wrestled with the man, and the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not go unless you bless me. And the man said, the man asked him, well, what is your name? Which is a clearly obvious response to that uh, request. <laughs> Jacob, he answered, and then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. 
So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Verse 31, The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of Jacob's, uh, of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Um, I think it's a really weird verse to include, that like they don't eat the tendon because, like it's like if I was going to have you over for dinner, and they were like, well, I'm going to bring a side, what are we having? And I was like, we're having barbecue tendon. And you're like, my great, 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 great grandfather like wrestled with this dude and got touched in the tendon, so I don't eat tendon. And like, I'd just be like, you don't have to have a weird excuse. It's tendon. Like, just don't eat tendon. The Bible's weird. All right, so uh, I want to, to help us understand what's going on here, I want to look at also chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is a super famous chapter. It's referred to as a hall of fame, the hall of faith. Um, and uh, recently at the, my home church in Bentonville, we've been looking at this idea of the hall of flaw, that like they're all faithful servants of God, but, and they don't do all these things by faith, but they're not perfect people. And so, um, and it's interesting in chapter 11, there's like, it talks about like by faith Abel did this thing, and by faith Enoch, and by faith Noah, and by faith Abraham, and there did all these paragraphs about faith. And uh, so in Hebrews 11, 1, uh, he kind of defines, or the writer of Hebrews kind of defines faith, that is, now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. And this is this, if you've been in the church a lot, you know this, this idea of faith. But I think it's important for us to look at this thing about being sure of what we hope for, because it says in verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. And we can read Genesis, we can read Hebrews, we read Jesus, we read Paul, we read all this Bible stuff, you hear it preached. But there's a lot of things in here that, you, that if you're like me, you'll read this, you're like, I struggle to relate to that. Like, that's a weird story. I don't have two wives and maidservants and 11 sons. I don't, I didn't, I never, I never got to cross the fort of the Jabbok. I don't know, like, honestly, there's just stuff in here that is so different from our lives, even in the last hundred years of what has gone on in the, in the industrial revolution and technology and everything. Like, and my encouragement to you is that when you, when there's stuff in here that's like, I don't see myself in this, it's, I struggle with seeing this. And whether you're young or old, you're going to struggle with it. But my encouragement to you is that when you get to this point where you're like, I struggle with this passage, with this part, with this story, like to struggle with it, like to actually struggle with it. Like don't set it down and be like, no, my excuse is that I struggle with relating to it. Instead, actually do the work to maybe get a glimpse of you in that story and actually do struggle with the thing. Because, uh, when, once you can find yourself in the story, the, like, a little bit of struggle can go a long way. And what you'll see in this story about faith and this, these flaws and where we're at, and this is a note, if you like to take notes, I'm a note taker, so I wrote some down for you. You don't have to write these down, but uh, they will be on the test later. So faith and doubt are two sides of the same coin. Faith only exists amongst doubt. And this is what I mean, is that like, uh, we're, we're talking about faith, and it's easy to read Hebrews and be like, man, these, these people have all this faith. And it's like, I don't have faith like that. And, and 
the, the writer writes to the Hebrews, and I think the Hebrews knew these people, and they're like, wait, you're, you're pulling this one story out of the Old Testament about Uncle Noah that had faith, but like Uncle Noah had some messed up stuff going on too. You know what I mean? And like, if you read the story, there's, there's more going on to like, well, he was always faithful. He always did the right thing. Actually, uh, there's some pretty weird stuff that goes on with Noah. And then that's how it is with everybody. And if you've got some relatives that are faithful saints, you know they're also a little bit messed up sometimes. And they got their own issues that they're dealing with. And so uh, everyone that does anything by faith and would be commended in something like Hebrews 11, they find themselves first in this environment of doubt, this like murky, cloudy vision of the future with unnameable questions. All right? Like, like when I, was a, when I was a teenager, there was this youth pastor that gave me an example, and it was a very popular example. You may have experienced something similar where they put a, a chair on stage, and they're like, faith is like you look at the chair, and you can see the chair, and you might believe in the chair, but faith is sitting in the chair, and I just think that's completely wrong. Because none of you came in here today and looked at these chairs, and you were like, I don't know if it's going to hold me. I'm going to need to test this thing. No, you just plop down. Like, there's no faith in the situation. You just, like, and, and I think that faith actually exists when there's doubt, when there's, like, when it's difficult. And the, uh, so I had heard this other example about a rope swing, that it's like, well, no, faith is like a rope swing. You're going to, like, swing out into the water, and it's going to be deep enough, and it's going to hold you. And I've definitely gone on rope swings where it did not hold me. <laughs> And uh, that's why there's some laughing from this section over here, because they probably have video evidence of it. But the, um, like, for most rope swings, you're not just going to, like, have faith in the rope swing. You're going to watch 12 people go and then do the rope swing. Like, so I don't even think, like, being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see is something that we don't really do. Like, that you guys just talked about Abraham and he is told to go to this land that God's going to show him. And like, I would, I can't imagine not having roads. All right. I can't imagine not having a GPS. I can't imagine being like, you're going to go over that mountain. And it's like, where, where there's tribes that might kill you. Maybe I'll show you. Like, we don't understand faith like that. That just like, we're just going to go venture out into the wilderness because it's all wilderness and see what's out there. I research everything before I go somewhere. And, and I don't know that, so I don't think that we can relate to a lot of this stuff, but I do think that, this, that there's this initial moment of faith, that there's actually a first step of faith. And I want to encourage you that there's these things in your life that will come up where there's this, it starts to be a big environment of doubt where it's like, I'm scared. I'm starting to be sure of what I dread, not of what I hope for. I'm starting to be sure of what I can't see, and it's not good. And what I'm, my encouragement to you is like, when you're in that moment, that's the exact environment where faith can actually come alive in your life. That when, you, when you're in that spot, that for this split second, it's not going to be full-fledged faith. It's, it'll get there someday, but for a split second, you get to let go of, of this certainty on what you dread, and, and just for a second, be sure of what you hope for, and it's the spark of faith. That it's like, you, you, might go, you might backtrack really quick, but it's like just allowing yourself to let go of being sure of what we dread, and with a certainty for what we cannot see is this initial moment of faith. And some of us feel like that's really scary because we've been burned by hope before. 
And I want to encourage you that letting go of certainty on doubt and dread for a split second is enough to get you started, and you don't have to get it all figured out. You don't have to be the full-fledged faith they're going to write about me in Hebrews 11. Just let go of it for a split second and let yourself once again, in whatever the new being sure of what I dread thing is, maybe I can be sure of what I hope for in this situation instead and see what God can do with faith like that. And we need to get back to Jacob, but I, I want to look at the environment in which he came into the world because we want to look at his faith, but frankly, like his story is a little different from mine. And unless we do some of the work to see ourselves in the story, we're just going to look at it and be like, no, that's a weird Bible story and... and check, went to church, done. But I don't want to do that. I want it to get inside you guys. So check, check out this, observ this observation about Jacob, Jacob's backstory in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8. Perfect. All right. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his, as his inheritance, he obeyed and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. This is that crazy, like, I do not understand. I don't have faith like that. That would freak me out. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. This is important, as did Isaac and Jacob. So there's Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and they're all living in tents for generations who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. This is the environment that Jacob grows up in. His grandpa had left his country, gone to somewhere else, and they lived in tents. It's not that they couldn't have built more permanent residence. They didn't. They lived in tents. This is, and, and the whole time, they're looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That's a good story to be passed down that you're living into. And this is your next note, if you want to take notes, is that we all experience this metaphorical tent living, and we long for a home with a firm foundation. This is something that every single person experiences. You, you experience this when you watch the news. It doesn't matter which news channel you watch or you turn on the internet. You look at it and you go, why is it like this? Jesus, come quickly and fix it all. Like, that's what you, like, that's, it's just, that's the thing. Like, there's this thing in us that's like, my, my relationships with my spouse, with my kids, with my parents, with my friends, with my church family, with my community, it's all difficult in some way. Yeah, it's great, but there's also times where it's difficult where you're like, man, if God could just fix this. There was one time where I was, I, this is for free. This is in no other sermon that I'm just going to share. I was right across the street here at the county courthouse figuring out this whole jury duty thing at one point, and I was like looking at the whole system thinking, man, Humans put a lot of work into figuring out what is true and right and what needs to happen in consequences, and God could do it like that. It's just absolutely insane. Anyway, that's for free. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. And, 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 and because we do, we want, we want this city with the firm foundation where God's the architect, where it's all figured out, where we don't have to do the hard work, where God knows what is good and right and, and can be the ruler and reigner. And since we're talking about this construction of life, I think it's important to do a quick aside on deconstruction. Um, deconstruction is, if you haven't heard about it, it's uh, taking apart the thing to see how it works. And uh, in a religious, spiritual sense, it's been pretty popular recently, um, and especially with younger people, about just kind of taking apart the thing that they inherited and see how it works. And... Um, 
deconstruction is not necessarily bad, and sometimes it's necessary and healthy, but it's gotten a bad rap, where it's like, if you, if you start to take all the pieces apart, then you're, you know, it, you're, you're backsliding, or you're doubting, or you're, and, and it gets this difficult, and it's like, I just, what I've seen over the years is that there's a bit of an advantage to tent life, just admitting that it's tent life, and that we just don't have it all figured out, and that when we act like we do, when we act like everything's settled, it's discombobulating to experience how unsettled it all is, that it actually is tent life, and it's not all figured out yet, and so there's these moments where you're, you're told this stuff, and then you experience these moments, usually with people, where there's these people that were supposed to be on the outside because of whatever reason, but they're exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit in ways that actually looks like the love of God. And there's other times where the people that are on the inside that should have integrity don't have integrity and they don't have the fruit of the Spirit. And it starts to be like, man, this stuff is not as settled as I thought it was. It's not black and white. There's a lot of like, everybody's on their own journey and you can't just look at a situation and be okay with it and and, and just think that everything's going to always be okay. There's a lot of stuff that can happen and there's a lot of wiggle room. And I don't have it all figured out. That's for sure. Christianity is marred with a long history of selfish, sinful, unholy, anti-Christ values that are held dear. And then later, they're reformed and removed because the Holy Spirit does work. If you look at the history of Christianity, it happens all the time. And deconstruction can create a constructive possibility for revival, where you actually take the thing apart and in that environment... God can do something. Listen, the, the things we inherit are always holy. And finding the work of Jesus among the pieces is holy exploration. And I encourage you, if you need to do it, do it. Take some friends. Tell people that you're going to do it. Tell people that you're going to actually work through. Like, how does this, how do we get to the point that this is what normal is? Can we go back and see where Jesus is in all of this? And I would encourage you to take it apart in a way that you can try to put it back together. I, if, Think about this. If you try to take a fax machine apart with a screwdriver, you might be able to, to see how it works. You might be able to put it back together. If you take it apart with a hammer, it's going to be a lot harder to put it back together. Warning, if you take the fax machine apart, you're not going to figure out how it works. It's dark magic, and it, I don't understand <laughs> at all. You can take the whole thing apart, and you will not figure out how the fax machine works. And if you don't know what a fax machine is, ask your parents. All right, I want to look at the world in which Jacob's raised. It was all kinds of ungodly. It was all kinds of ungodly and dishonest. And let's just have some grace for them because in other ways, you know, they're just doing the best they can with what they've been given and trying to make the world a little bit better for the next generation. So I'm going to just go really quickly through this. So Genesis 25, Jacob's born. And you can go back and read this throughout the week if you want. But Jacob's born in 25, the second of twins, grabbing his brother Esau's heel on his way out the womb. When this, and he gets this name, grabber or deceiver. And I don't understand how Jacob can mean grabber or deceiver, but I'm not a Bible scholar and I trust him. So that's what it says. And uh, so he's got this word spoken over him. You're a grabber, you're a deceiver. And by chapter 26 is this other stuff that doesn't really have to do with Jacob. Chapter 27, Jacob's grown up and he manifests his given name and deceives his father Isaac to steal the blessing that was intended for his older brother Esau. It's a great 
Sunday school lesson. There's weird fur and stew and deception. It's awesome. So <laughs> he goes from heel grabber to blessing stealer. He like embodies the thing that's spoken over him that it's like, I'm going to get mine and, I, and I'm going to figure out because like for whatever reason, I mean, there's lots of reasons, but you'll have to go and look at it. And in verse, or in chapter 28, Jacob is instructed to go to Paddan Aram to find a cousin to marry. Yes, that is correct. Like, don't marry anybody here. Go to your mom's brother and find one of his daughters. Get a nice cousin, and we're going to marry. This is one of the reasons why you just can't take the Bible literally, all right? Because, like, this is weird advice. And it was their, it was their tradition at the time. Um, but on his way to Paddan Aram to find his hot cousin to marry, he has this dream, all right? So his parents have told him about God, but on his way, he has a dream where there's this stairway to heaven moment where he experiences the God that his parents told him about, but he actually has a personal experience with his God. It isn't just hearsay. It isn't just mom and dad's religion. It becomes his own. It's like he has this dream the heavens open up. There's a stairway to heaven. Led Zeppelin is playing. There's a, it's a beautiful experience. Uh, again, if you didn't get that reference, ask your parents to Spotify it for you. So, and and so he he has this. So he goes from like hearing about God to having a personal experience with God. Then he gets in chapter 29. He agree. He gets to. Uh, he gets to his Uncle Laban's house, and he finds uh, his cousins. He finds the hot one. He's like, I want Rachel. And so he's like, I'll trade. Uh, like, what do I need to do? Well, let's work this out. And, uh, and Laban, the uncle, is like, seven years. Work for seven years. And so that's, okay, sure, that's fair. Again, it's a, it's a different culture. Uh, seven years, he works for his uncle to marry his cousin. <laughs> I just, oh, man. I can't imagine being in those pre-married counseling situations. All right, so, uh, so, and then this time, after seven years, he gets married, but instead of him being the deceiver, he gets tricked into marrying the Leah, the other sister that he didn't want to marry. He wanted to marry Rachel. And uh, so, he's like, oh, how did this happen? And, uh, and, and Uncle Laban's like, well, you re- did you really think I was going to let you marry Rachel? He's like, yes, that was the deal. Seven years, Rachel. Remember the whole thing? And uh, I did think so. And so he agrees with the uncle after that whole thing. Listen, if you work seven more years, I'll let you marry Rachel also. And he says yes. Like, dude, you just got burned by your uncle. But anyway, so... <laughs> He agrees seven more years work to marry Rachel, and yes, he stays married to Leah also. So now he's got uh, two cousin wives. Whoa. All right. Um, So in chapter 30, Jacob has children. It gets very complicated. There are both wives and a maidservant involved, and I won't get into it, but I do not wish this love quadrilateral on anybody. It is very complicated. So... In this chapter, Jacob also figures out a way to build an incredible amount of wealth with flocks and herds and such. And so uh, this creates a situation in 31 where the cousins become jealous. They're going to destroy Jacob. He's taking, he took the cousins. He took all the, uh, all, all the uh, uh, livestock and he's got all this wealth. And so they're going to go and they're plotting to destroy Jacob. So at this point, Jacob's in a situation where it's like, I, I fled from my home and I went here and Esau was out to get me. Or I've got my cousins over here that are mad because I took their... Because anyway, so like, it, it, 
I'm, I'm more sure that I'm not, maybe I won't die over here, so I'm going to go back to my brother and try to get that figured out. And so, uh, man, it's a, a difficult situation. But he decides to flee, and so he goes back, and, and in chapter 32, this is where he sends his family and flocks ahead across the Jabbok, and then he wrestles with God that we read about, right? So this is, the, this is where he gets to that point where he's going to tr- try to get reconciled to Esau. And I want to look at the conversation, this struggle that uh, 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 Jacob and this, this God-man character have in the, in the night. And um, so this is, uh, this is the conversation uh, that I will not go unless you bless me. Jacob's holding on to this man in wrestling him, and he's doing the same thing. He already stole his brother's birthright. He's already got the blessings. He went to his uncle's house. He got two wives, maidservants, all these kids, all this livestock, and he's like, I need a blessing. Dude, you were blessed. Like, you got everything, right? And he's like, and, 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 and the man asks him, what is your name? And he replies, Jacob. Like, he actually... Which I think it's a weird question, but unless, but once you understand, like, no, this is the thing that was spoken over him that he was manifesting, that he's continuing to be this guy. He's like, wait, what's your name? And he's like, it's not that the man doesn't know, but the man is God. So it's like the man knows what Jacob's name is, but he's having him admit, this is who I am. I am Jacob. I'm the deceiver. I'm the grabber. I'm the stealer. And he says to him, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. You've struggled with God and humans and overcome. And there's this really cool part where, he's, where Jacob's like, then you tell me your name. Who are you? Who are you to redefine me? I've been this my whole life. Tell me who you are. Doesn't tell him. He blesses him. Why do you ask my name? He's just like, why do you ask? You already know. You're not who you think you are, and I actually am who you think I am. And Jacob realizes, because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. He never learns his name. And there's something about having it out with God that changes you. That there's this moment, he had this moment where he experienced God, and he went through some life, and then he wrestled with God. Everyone goes through this, and no one does this for you. There's this intersection that happens for everyone of a crumbling spiritual reality. Whatever you thought was spiritual and right and good, it's going to crumble at some point and intersect with an imploding grasp on what is right or real in the real world. It's just going to happen. It's that, that's life, is that there's going to be these storms in life. And in that moment, you can ignore You have two options. You can ignore it or you can deal with it. That's it. Those are the two options. And I've watched people and myself do both. Like you have two options. You can ignore it or deal with it. Dealing with it is wrestling with God. And this is your next note. If you want to write stuff down, it's long. I'll leave it up there. The struggle can't be theoretical, metaphorical, inherited, or otherwise absorbed or incorporated. When it comes to God, the struggle is real and the struggle is yours to overcome. You don't get to do it for somebody else. Somebody else's struggle doesn't get to be yours. Everyone struggles with God in a different way. For me, I, I'll, 
there was a moment where this everything was in my life, where this spiritual reality was crumbling. The, my imploding grasp on what was true or real or right was just like everything was swirling. And I took time. At the time, we were at Axiom uh, in the other location downtown, and it was a Sunday afternoon, and I was able to just go in there in a ridiculously hot in environment that I don't remember all of it, but I can re- tell you what the carpet looked like. And I could, I could tell you about the tears, and I could tell you that it was a long time. But what happened in that moment was every stage of grief came out like this little hurricane, this little personal hurricane that was like an exorcism of silence where I finally said all the things to God that I was holding inside. And I will tell you that nothing was actually resolved in that moment, but it's important to go through that, to find the space, to just say, I'm done trying to act like this isn't happening and I'm just going to go deal with the thing. So Jacob has it out with God and in verse or chapter 33, he kind of moves on with his life. He has it out with God. He's now walking with a limp and here's a quick summary about how his life goes afterward. In 33, he reaches his brother Esau. He settles in Canaan in a place called Shechem. He reconciles with his brother. It's like, you did the thing with God. You reconciled with your brother. You got, you're in the promised land. Everything's going to be good. And he's in Shechem, which is ruled by a guy named Shechem, which is weird, but apparently at that time they named towns after people that were the rulers. Chapter 34 is like the most HBO-worthy chapter of Genesis. It is full of rape, revenge, mass circumcision, and total massacre of an entire city. So he goes from like, wrestle with God, reconcile to your brother, go to the promised land, and then like everything falls apart. And at the end of chapter 34, Jacob learns that all this stuff, the rape, the revenge, the mass circumcision, the total massacre of an entire city, like his kids are the center of all of it. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) And in chapter 35, there's this other conversation that Jacob has with God. And in in verse one, look at this. God says to Jacob, go to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. I love, this, is, this conversation with God is peak humanity. This is where I want to be someday. This is what I want for all of you. Like if you look at what happens here, he has an experience with God. He wrestles with God. Stuff is pretty good. Stuff falls apart. And then he has this conversation with God. And this is what God says. Go to Bethel, settle there, build an altar. And Jacob turns to his family and he says, get rid of the foreign gods, purify yourselves, and change your clothes. <laughs> Not one thing that God said. Like Jacob and God have this conversation and Jacob can read between all the lines. He knows what God's really saying. He knows that there's this other, th- like I tell my kids, hey, it's time to go. And then that means 17 other things. And then they get in the car and they're like, I didn't know I needed shoes. I'm like, this is what this is like. They actually, Jacob and God have the conversation where God can say, listen, you're going to go here. And Jacob's like, I know, I know everything you're saying. I can read between all the lines. And he tells us, listen, get rid of the foreign gods, purify yourselves, and change your clothes because we ain't going looking like this. 
This is the dream that you get to a point where everything falls apart and God says something and you're like, you're on perfect speaking terms with God. Where it's like, yeah, I got, I got the whole thing. No, like, the whole, there's no like, oh, I got to pray about it. He's like, literally, I just told you. No praying necessary. We're on, like, we're on speaking terms. It's good. Go and do the thing. So Genesis 28, there's this dream, stairway to heaven, personal experience with God. Genesis 32, he wrestles with God. And in Genesis 35, he is on speaking terms with God. How do we get there? You can't go from a moment with the God of the universe, like the Holy Spirit moving you, the Son of God, Jesus himself saving you, being enthroned in your heart, you trading everything that's wrong with you for everything that's right with him, and everything that's good about holy in Jesus. You can't just go from that to like, okay, now we're on speaking terms. There's no awkwardness. We worked it all out because you didn't work it all out. You've said, I've been wrong and I want to follow what's right, but that doesn't mean that you just know all of the ways of God. And that everything that's in you that's selfish or even seeds of sin is just eradicated and gone. There's a sanctification process. And without going through the struggle, you don't actually get work that stuff into your life. This is what I mean when I say the struggle is real. And the struggle is going to mess you up in the most unique way. Because we think that when you actually go through the, you get saved, you struggle with God, then everything is together. And when, when Jacob goes through that, the rest of his life he walks with a limp. It messes him up. His struggle with God is that he's not okay for the rest of his life. And some of you are sitting here and you've thought like, man, if, if God could just fix this thing and I'm here to tell you like God is with you and it's never getting fixed and it's okay. It will lead you to a place when you struggle with God, it will lead you to a place where you walk with a limp. And this is really important that like there's, there's going to be something in your life that just sticks with you and it won't go away. And it's okay if... You stay in the process with God. And we'll see how that works out. But you've met those people. I hope that you have. That you've met those flawed but faithful saints. That it's like they're not perfect. But you know that they walk with God because they've struggled with God and it shows. And they, like they've gone through some stuff and they're still walking with God. Listen, I say this rhetorically because I don't hang out with you all the time because I don't live here anymore. But I'm just saying it and I hope that you receive it in the best way. Some of you have never really struggled with God and it shows. It shows because you know it. That you're hung up on something. There's something that you did. There's something that was done to you. There's something that didn't fit with the way that things were supposed to go when you were sure of what you hoped for. And, there, and you never had it out with God. And it is killing you. You've avoided the space where you have to have it out with God. And when you do that, it dulls your relationship and awareness of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and it drives you crazy. And I'm telling you, there is no other way except through. Nobody's doing it for you. Nobody will even understand. Like, 
we can't understand Jacob's wrestling with God all alone and what happened in that night. There's this conversation that he told the people so that it could get written down, but we don't really understand that struggle. And before we finish, I want to highlight how this happened for someone in the New Testament, this post-life death resurrection of Jesus. Paul, so Saul, Saul is Pharisee of Pharisees. He's grown up. His world is in the religious system of the Jew, the, in the Jewish system. And he is holding, Saul is holding the coats of the Pharisees as his mentors and heroes are stoning Stephen to death, the first martyr, so that they won't get blood on them and they can stay ceremonially, ceremonially clean. These are his heroes. So when he goes to persecute Christians and lock them up and get them killed, of course he does. That's the world that he grew up in until he has a moment with Jesus. And it knocks him on his back and it takes away his sight and it totally changes him. And if you read Paul's letters, you know that Paul wrestled with God. And in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about, there's like, there's this thing that's this thorn in my side. It's just stuck with me. And he says, three times I pleaded with God. And listen, I got compassion for God because I've seen Paul plead. And Paul is not succinct. Paul is long-winded. And so when Paul says, I've pleaded three times with God, my guess is that's like, close to two decades of prayers to God. Take this away. Like it is, and in verse nine, God finally says, after three wrestling matches with God, in verse nine of 2 Corinthians, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And we're gonna go on, but I just, as Matt was singing today and leading us, this word, sufficient, I just feel like needs to be spoken over some people today. That you have had some valleys, you have had some sinkholes in your life where you're like, it's, I think that God can be enough, but I'm pretty sure of what I'm dreading at this point. And I want to tell you and speak over you that his grace is sufficient for you, that it will overflow, that what has been drought will fill up in your life and in your heart, and it will not be this way forever. His grace is sufficient for you. There's enough. My power is made perfect in weakness. Some of y'all have been avoiding the things that are the weak parts of your life. They are not the things you, he says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. He's like, you want to know what it's like to be a Christian? We're talking, you want know what it's like to be hashtag blessed? We're talking weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties because that's the only time that I need God and I get God. Everything else is pretending to be like other people are when they already got God. They went through their struggle, and I could try to act like they are when they're on the other side. But listen, God's got a struggle for you that you go through, and then he can be sufficient. His grace can, be, can fill you in a way you've never been filled before. 
because you were playing with somebody else's grace. And listen, that works. You get close to other people with grace. It's kind of nice. But when you experience it for yourself, when the sanctification of the Holy Spirit works in your life, that's ripping stuff out and putting new life in, it's unlike anything you could ever experience from someone else. It's you and God. My hope for you is that someday you stand before God and it's not terrifying at all. You're just giving hugs because you're like, finally, my beloved, I love you. I've been waiting to be with you. Nothing's weird between us. My encouragement for you is to keep going. Keep going and be honest. Walk with a limp. Love Jesus and let it be difficult. Love Jesus and let it be difficult. It's okay. It's okay to live out the rest of your days and not pretend that it's all okay when it isn't. To be like, I got a limp. It's hard. I can't go do the thing because I wanted to, but I wrestled with God and so this is how I am now. But I'm with God. And I want to end today as we worship together. The worship team can come up and I want to talk about this. Last little piece from uh, Hebrews eleven twenty one, 21, that um, by faith, um, Jacob, when he's dying, it says, this is the, all those by faith stories in Hebrews 11. When it gets to Jacob, it says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed each of Joseph's sons, his grandsons, and, and he says he worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And like this was written for the Hebrews, and I think that they knew. I, I, I'm 100% sure. They knew when they read this, it wasn't just some old guy with a staff. Well, oh, he got old, and so he needed a cane. That's Jacob. That's Israel. He walked with a limp all his days. And his last day, he's had that staff because he can't walk right because of his hip. And he's still worshiping God, standing, leaning into his weakness. My encouragement to you is to walk with the limp, work through the mess, find the time, figure it out. In the meantime, we're going to take communion this morning. God will be with you. God will be with you. That's communion. That's what this is, is that we're with God. This is our shared experience. It's why this meal is called communion. And you may need to schedule some time this week to go find your place to go work through some stuff with God. But I would encourage you today that God is infinitely patient with you and wants to be with you. And this is what we experience in communion and worship this morning and that we can worship leaning into our weakness and receive communion even though we're weak so that we can experience the strength of God. So let's pray. God, we're so grateful this morning for your grace that is sufficient in ways that we have doubted in the past. And I pray for sparks of faith in this room that would believe, let themselves believe for a second and hope that your grace is sufficient for them, God. 
I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be in this place and doing a mighty work in hearts right now as we are with you, that you would set people free, that you would open eyes, that you would help people be honest, that your love would permeate this place. And then as Pastor James leads us in communion, Jesus, that you would inhabit the praise of your people and that you would be with us in this time. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.